At a moment when we are facing an epidemic of incivility, with divisive political speech, online trolling, and antipathy on the rise, popular CNN commentator Sally Kona set out to discover why we hate and how we can stop it. During a riveting Ivy Ideas Night, Sally drew on her extensive insights and experience from her recent work, The Opposite of Hate, to discuss evolutionary and cultural roots of today's rampant anger and hatred. By giving powerful examples of hatred, and more importantly, those from across the globe who have left it behind, Sally offered rich food for thought on how each of us can help contribute to a more peaceful society. Hi, everyone. That was very lovely and warm. Okay, I'm so excited to be here. And I love the chance to meet those of you I already met. I hope I get to meet more of you afterwards. I'm gonna talk for 40-ish minutes. Wave your hand at me when we're at five, will ya? Great, thank you, Travis. And then you all will ask some questions. Then we'll sign some books, drink some margaritas, have a good time until I pass out because I'm on East Coast time right now and it's almost my bedtime. Okay, cool. This is what I'm all, you know what's funny as a side note is I, uh, every time I'm in a room full of people who are generally like this is a young professionals network, I get it. And I'm all like, oh, we're contemporaries. And then I find out when you all graduated from college and I'm like, oh, we're not. It's fine. So us old ladies, you can go to bed early. You can look forward to that in life. So um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my career, a little bit about how I came to write this book and some of the things I learned and my takeaways that I hope are instructive, useful lessons, or not lessons, but options for you to consider in your own work and lives. Then you'll ask some questions. Sound cool? All right, great. So um, one little corrective to uh, the introduction, which is I am not currently on Fox News, <laughs> but I was on Fox News, and you think, that's funny. Any regular Fox News viewers? I didn't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm really pretty good at reading a room. So, but I'm just sort of curious, show of hands, anybody who thinks that there's just generally speaking a lot of me on Fox News? Right, okay, so cool. So, right, so how the hell did that happen? Right, I know you're wondering. So I, um, I spent the first 15 years of my career as a community organizer. So my work, I loved my work. My work was going around the country, speaking to groups of people, connecting with folks in towns and cities and states who wanted to make change in their communities. And I helped them do what they wanted to do, connect and do it better. So these are folks working on immigration reform, uh, criminal justice policy fixing broken schools, trying to get LGBT rights in their workplaces. And I love my job. It was a great job. It's very warm up here. I'm taking my jacket off. Hang on, guys. This is the stripping part. Ready? No. It's not that exciting. Trust me. But you're wondering how I got hired at Fox News. I'm just kidding. Just joking. Just joking. That was how I got hired at CNN. Anyway. So <laughs> All right, so that's what I was doing. I loved my job. It was great work. Uh, in 2009 or thereabouts, I, as a happy community organizer, was speaking at a conference, much like this, but not like this, because I was just speaking as an organizer on a panel about organizing, and someone comes up to me afterwards and says, we have to get you on television. And I said, no, we do not, because... <laughs> I was an organizer, and for those who don't know about organizing, the ethos of being a community organizer is very much you actually are behind the scenes. You do not want the spotlight. Your job 
is, and your whole value system is about putting the people who are affected by the issues, the community leaders put them in the spotlight. So that was like antithetical to my whole work and worldview. So I said, no, I turned to walk away. I actually laughed kind of politely and then turned to walk away. This woman grabs me by the arm. She says, she actually grabbed me kind of hard. She says, no, you're going to do this and you're going to be good at it. And I said, she doesn't seem to take no for an answer. Lesson learned. Turns out her name was Geraldine Laybourne. She was the first woman ever to run a television network. She ran Nickelodeon. Not maybe the most helpful network for me at the time. <laughs> Though I still hold out a hope of being a cartoon character. I mean, it would be so cool. Uh, and then she and her friend Oprah started Oxygen. So she was not someone who took no for an answer, it turns out. And literally, she dragged me across the room. She said, this person is going to train you. I'm going to support you. I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to encourage you. She was as good as her word. She did all those things. And I was like, all right, well, I'm not getting out of this, apparently. So cool. I'll learn some new skills. I will be a more media savvy organizer. And I will go back to what I was doing as an organizer, but able to explain the world media better to my field. Cool. And then what happened was I, I realized I liked it. I realized that I was good at going on television. I always enjoyed writing. So I realized, oh, I could write for a living. It's not just a side thing. I could do this. And also, I enjoyed going on television and talking about issues. And it was a lot like organizing. I was explaining, translating, getting people engaged and activated and excited about issues. And that made a lot of sense to me. My community that I came from, the organizing world, was very supportive, liked having me in that role. And so I realized, and it also felt a lot like organizing, right? Instead of like 100 people in a church basement, it was a million people on television. But the ideas were the same. The feeling was the same. I was making a difference and communicating things I thought were important. So then I did what little baby pundits do, uh, where you go on all the networks, go on MSNBC and CNN and Fox News, and you go and you, your head talks, hence the term. And then one day I saw this guy outside of Fox News who uh, looked like Roger Ailes. Turns out was Roger Ailes. I waved at him. He waved back. Uh, next day he calls me into his office, tells me I have pretty eyes. Five times in five minutes. <laughs> Which I now know means I got off easy, let's be honest, right? Abe <laughs> did not know at all uh, anything else that was going on there. I was, as you might imagine, in many ways on the margins of Fox News. So I ended up going to work as a commentator on Fox News. Now, before I did this, you, well, you should know two things about me. One, you should know I'm a lesbian. Is everyone all right? Okay, I mean, you don't know these days. Okay. No one got up and left, so I'm going to keep going. All right, cool. So in addition to that, you should also know I'm a lefty. You okay? <laughs> right, I know. You know, these days, depending on the room, you don't know which one is going to hit people. You know what I mean? You kind of have to, and it's fun to disaggregate them just to see where the room is at. Because some rooms... You'd be surprised. They're all gay, no problem. Lefty! Right, anyway. So, as a lefty, as an organizer, uh, I called up all my friends who were literally the people organizing the campaigns to shut down Fox News. Those were actually my friends. I called them up and I said, hey guys, how do you feel if I take this job? Because it was important to me to be accountable to my identity and to my work as an organizer. And I checked in with them and they said, we like this. This is good. This is great. Look, someone has to do it. We'd rather it be you. Go forth. We know that if Fox News is ever destroyed, you will not begrudge the loss of your measly paycheck. So uh, there you go. So anyway, so that's how it came to be that I went to go be 
a lefty lesbian on Fox News. And just in case you weren't 100% sure, that's right, it was just me. There were no others, just me. So if we put all this together, what happened in that moment when I went to go be me, having done all my organizing work in the past, organizing in many ways against the right wing, against the forces and the people embodied by Fox News. So I thought when I set foot in Fox, I thought that these people I was going to meet and work alongside, people on air, the people behind the scenes, people watching at home, I thought they would be 100% hateful. Like not just that they supported ideas, held views that I found hateful, still do. But I mean that they would just be, in every sense of the word, completely mean and nasty. Nasty to me personally, nasty to me politically, just mean, hateful monsters. And so two things happened when I started working at Fox and for the time I was there. The first was that I realized they weren't that. And I mean, maybe it should be, it is embarrassing actually to admit that that's what I thought, but that is what I thought. And I was surprised that folks were more complicated than that. They still had those hateful views that they were espousing, but sometimes we could also find areas where we agreed. Either way, they could be nice to me personally. Some of the nicer people I'd ever met could care about me, care about my career, care about my family. This really threw me for a huge loop. And the second thing that happened was that I realized I hated them. I mean, I hated them, right? Like, here I am going into this situation thinking, man, I am against hate. That's who I am. That's the work I do. I am so against hate. And I'm going in here, and oh, these people are so hateful. And I realize, okay, wait, they're not as hateful as I thought. And oh, my God, I'm hateful. I hate them. I have all these stereotypes and preconceived notions and have made all these generalizations and have you know, demeaned and dehumanized them. And that led me to the journey and the work since that is represented in this book, but is still an ongoing journey, not done, lifelong work, to figure out, okay, if I'm against hate, we'll come to a second what I mean by that, but if I'm against hate, and I'm against it in all of its forms, its institutional forms, culture, so, cultural forms, politics, political, policy, systems, I'm also against it interpersonally, the idea that we hate, we otherize one another, groups of people. And yet, up until that point, I had been really focused on them and their hate and hadn't looked at me and my hate and my piece of the puzzle, my, my role, my part, both of the problem and of the solution. Does that make sense? All right. So when I talk about hate, by the way, just to be clear, I am not talking about, like, you hate broccoli. In my book, you can hate broccoli. Like literally and figuratively in my book, you are allowed to hate broccoli, okay? You are also allowed to hate the musical stylings of, for instance, Kenny G. I am so, this is a really weird one, by the way, because I have learned as I've gone around the country that picking on Kenny G as an example is a real hot button. Like there are some real serious Kenny G fans out there who get really deeply offended. And suddenly, I kid you not, I have a collection of Kenny G albums that people keep giving me. So if there are any Kenny G fans, I've got some CDs for you. Um, did you hear about when there was a plane that was stranded on a tarmac 
and Kenny G was on the plane, and he apparently took out his saxophone thingy, whatever the hell that thing is, and he actually played, right? I'm like, that's like a hijacking. That's not a concert. Like, that's wrong. My idea of hell on a plane. Anyway, so, which is to say, I feel free to hate Kenny G and his music. Not hate him, but I say hate his music. You should feel free to, just whoever it is. Got it? You can also hate your ex-girlfriend, your ex-boyfriend, that ex-boss, no problem. That's between you and them. When I talk about hate, the hate that worries me, the hate that concerns me, is the hate that is in our history in the past and our habits in the present, in our institutions, our policies, our systems, our culture, and our interpersonal relationships, the way we are in the world, the way we are with each other. That, that history and those habits of demeaning and dehumanizing other people, and especially other groups of people, because of their identity or their ideas. That's the hate that I worry about in our world and our society today. So, long story short, fast forward, I ended up going on a journey to try to understand the phenomenon of hate. Why do we do this? Why do we demean and dehumanize each other and especially groups of people? What is that about in our history, in our past, in our present, in our psychology, in our biology? Why do we do that and how do we stop it? Can we stop it? And I ended up looking into the research and the science and the neuroscience and also traveling the world to meet former terrorists and ex-neo-Nazis and people who'd participated in genocide. Because I figured if they could stop hating, then there was definitely hope for the rest of us. They were at the extremes. Now, I don't think, to be clear, I do not think they're all the same thing. Right? So, like, I don't think, for instance, that most of my internet trolls, I have some really good ones, by the way. I know. You're jealous. It's fine. Um, I don't think that most of my internet trolls, right, are the same. It's not the same thing as being a terrorist, right? I don't think, you know, being uncivil in politics is the same thing as being a neo Nazi, right? Obviously not the same thing. But the root, the core, that habit, that history of demeaning and dehumanizing certain people, certain groups of people because of their identity or their ideas, it's the same. Same token, I don't think unconscious or implicit bias is the same thing as explicit hate. But the root is the same, right? So here's an example. If there are people marching down the street with tiki torches... It's not actually a hypothetical, unfortunately, in the United States today. There are people marching down the street with tiki torches, saying that certain people should be denied basic rights, equality, and justice because, of the, because the color of their skin makes them inherently inferior. Saying that aloud, chanting that, or things to that effect. We all agree that's hate, right? Friggin' hope we agree that's hate, all right? Okay, what if you think it, but don't say it? Is it still hate? All right, what if you think it, but you aren't aware that you think it? It's unconscious. Is that still hate? Right? Again, they're not all the same in terms of their impact, per se, and maybe not even in terms of culpability. But when we look at the core dynamics and the core problems in our relationship to one another and how we otherize, especially certain groups of people, it's the same thing, isn't it? Right? So I part, part purposefully drew a very broad definition because I think we have a very big problem and I want us to solve all of it. And I want us to take our own 
piece of responsibility in it to start moving towards solutions. Does that make sense? All right, cool. So, and in this regard, I'll tell you one of the things I learned the most, which is that most people do not believe they are hateful. This is true, like most of us. This is true of my internet trolls. I mean, I'm telling you, some of these people, they said some things which I really can't repeat because they're not nice things to say to strangers. You know, like I can't. They're words that I teach my kid not to use about other people, about their gender, their sexuality, just mean, mean, mean things. And we're talking people who said these things to me, uh, some of them on average of once a day. Yeah. So when I call them up, which I did for the book, I didn't even actually ask, do you hate me? Because I figured, well, that was, duh. Of course they hate me, right? They're writing these hateful things because they hate me. So I actually, my, my question was, why do you hate me? And you know what they said? I don't hate you. They thought I was hateful. I was the one who was supporting hateful policies, saying hateful things online, acting hateful on television. They thought I was hateful. Now, I am not validating their opinion here. I happen to think that's a load of horse shit, but... Sorry, I was trying to think of the technical term there. But, you know, of course, shit will have to do. But the point is that we tend to all have this they started it philosophy of hate. That they did it because they did it worse or first or both than I'm justified in doing it in return. By the way, this is true. Studies show this is true of even people who are members of groups we would consider to be obvious hate groups like terrorists and neo-Nazis. Right? The research is, in fact, that they don't join those organizations because they have those extreme hateful views, but rather the research suggests they are searching out belonging, find belonging, and then slide into, is the term the researchers use, slide into the ideology. It's true of gang recruitment. This is how terrorist recruitment works. They're looking for people who are disaffected. Not necessarily ideological adherence. The ideology comes from bonding in the group. They bond through hate. And if that sounds surprising to you, then... Think about for a second, if you've spent any time in the last, oh, I don't know, year, year and a half, talking with friends of yours, bonding over how much you hate the people who voted for the other side of who you voted for in the 2016 election. And then tell me you don't understand what it means to bond over hate. Again, not the same, but the same process, right? The same habit, the same rationalization. Right? I talked to a terrorist interrogator uh, who worked for the U.S. Army in Afghanistan. She said, most people believe their inherent motivations to be good. We tend to believe that we are good and we are just. When I went to Rwanda and studied, uh, studied is really the wrong word there. When I went to Rwanda and met with people who had been through what is the fastest genocide in world history, 800,000 people slaughtered in 100 days. And you read the books and you know intellectually, you hear these were people, they killed their friends, they killed their family members. But it's not until you meet people that you realize it's not like, oh, we just met kind of friends and family members. It's like killed their godchildren or their brother-in-law, people they have Sunday supper with. And a philosopher said to me, the reason we have mass atrocities 
is not because of a handful of psychopaths. There weren't enough psychopaths in Rwanda or in Germany or in Serbia. There just weren't. We have mass atrocities because masses of people participate in them. Masses of people who are otherwise normal and good, who have done extraordinarily evil things, but who for all intents and purposes are otherwise ordinary people. That is horrifying. That's also the paradox of our human existence, that we are all capable of good, we're all capable of evil, we're all capable of cruelty, we're all capable of kindness. One of the guiding principles for me in this journey has been Brian Stevenson, who had uh, the words of Brian Stevenson, who wrote the book Just Mercy, an anti death penalty activist and, and civil rights leader, just opened the Peace and Justice Memorial in Alabama. It was one of my professors, and he says, None of us are the worst thing we've ever done in life. What does it mean to actually live that idea in your lives and in your work? That if none of us are the worst thing we've ever done in life or the worst thing we've thought in life, the worst thing we've said in life, what does it mean to recognize that our, we see our own habit of pointing fingers and blame when it comes to hate, that they're the hateful ones, they're the problem, and therefore excuse our own peace, however big or small, in demeaning and dehumanizing others? What does it mean to actually act as though people could be better? To act as though people are redeemable. What does that mean in your daily life when you think about that uncle, that cousin, that coworker, person on that other team, that whole other team at work, the, the community? That, what does it mean to believe that people could be their best selves, and to then act in ways that encourage them to be their best selves, rather than giving them an excuse to continue to be hateful. What does it mean if we say we have a problem with hate in our society? We have a problem with the systemic and systematic dehumanization and demeaning of certain people, especially certain groups of people, because of their identity and their ideas. My goal is to get us to a place where we stop arguing that we have the problem. Because we are still arguing that this is a problem. Certainly in our country today, right? We are still arguing about whether we have systemic racism in our criminal injustice system and in our schools. We are still arguing about whether there is systemic misogyny in the workplace. Right? We're still arguing about whether Islamophobia is a real thing. I think we can get past, I'd like to see us get past that, where we're actually debating the solutions. But to do that, we have to not only be advocates for justice and fairness and equality at the big picture level, but also actually operationalize it ourselves. Actually take some responsibility for when am I hating and otherizing in my life? When am I part of the problem? When am I enacting unconscious bias? When am I treating the other side of the political aisle like they are wholly, intentionally hateful and irredeemably so? 
not to say we did it worse than first, but if it has to stop, it has to stop with someone. What does it mean for it to stop with you? What does it mean for it to stop with you? Right? So when I, um, how am I doing on time? Or Trevor Girl. How much time do I got? A tennis? All right, great. You all still with me? Okay, great. So this conversation to me felt infinitely more urgent. I thought like here I'd made done all this work, I'd done all this progress, I'd given like two TED talks about this. So like in the world of self-actualization, once you've done two TED talks about something, <laughs> I went to like one and a half meditation retreats, I was good. Uh, and then the 2016 election happened, and I don't want to project onto y'all, but I'll just say this about myself, which is I found myself having think I had evolved so much from those days at Fox News, I found myself right back in the same damn place. Where I'd be sitting around groups of my friends lead up to the 2016 election and the aftermath. Uh, we'd be sitting around in a restaurant or in a bar. There was usually a lot of alcohol. Uh, and my friends and sometimes me would say things like, man, those Trump supporters, they are so Islamophobic and anti-immigrant and racist and hateful, and I hate them, right? But it's that they started it, philosophy of hate again, this, because they did it first and worst, I'm excused. I can hate as much as I want. I'm justified because they're hateful. They're really hateful. I'm just reacting to their hate. Same thing online, right? And what I came to realize is two things. One, and again, look, I'm offering this as a path, as a choice that I want people to consider. Because look, when faced with hate, you can just choose to turn away and ignore it. This is the first do no harm philosophy. And that is a fine choice, especially for your own sanity and security. To just say, you know what, uncle? I'm not going there. Let's talk about sports. Or to like turn off the Twitter machine, you know? And just not engage. That's okay. But a lot of us, what we do is we feed hate with hate, right? We just dump more hate into Twitter. We dump more hate into the political discourse. We just fire more hate at our relatives or we do whatever it is. Our coworkers. Or and I will tell you, hate is not the answer to hate. Injustice is not the solution to injustice. Cruelty is not the cure for cruelty. It just makes the situation worse. Then the alternative is to choose to engage, but to engage in a way that is compassionate and kind and graceful and with, filled with grace, in the sense of being filled with grace, generous. Compassion, by the way, doesn't mean agreement. I can feel compassionate for how someone is feeling and not agree with their feelings or their beliefs. It's not the same thing. Right? We forget that in this day and age, like we've lost nuance, we've lost the ability to see beyond the extremes of right, but I can seek to understand someone without agreeing with them. Right? Okay. So for me, I want to leave you with this. For me, there's a moral dimension to this, and then there's a practical dimension. So morally, spiritually, look. One of the reasons, I started by telling you I'm a lefty. One of the reasons I'm a lefty is because I believe 
in the equal dignity and humanity of all people. I believe in the equal dignity and humanity of all people. So then, of course, the question is, do I mean all people? And do I even mean the people who would deny my equality and humanity? Now, I'm not saying that's always easy to act on. It's always easy to express. But as a matter of principle, as a matter of philosophy, as a matter of my human existence, do I mean all people? And then there's the practical piece, which is I will tell you from my experience as an organizer, from my experience talking to rooms, talking to people across the aisle, people who are extremely more conservative than I am, or talking to people who are homophobic, or right? In my experience, not once, not once ever have I seen anyone change because I hated them. Right? So I believe, by the way, the work I do, the reason I do this work, organizing through media, through now, the reason I believe in social change is because I believe it is possible to change the institutions and structures and systems and policies and culture of hate and inequality and injustice in our world. I believe it is possible. Right? We are a country that in innumerable ways was born, created of hate that has imperfectly, slowly, stupidly, haltingly, tried and failed to address that history, but it has remained, even if fictional, even if fading, even if aspirational, our aspiration, right? And I have still seen, imperfect though that change has been, I have seen the world change, I have seen people change, it's happened in my lifetime, right? I know people, I know people who were more homophobic 10 years ago than they are now. I know our country had anti-gay policies and positions that it now doesn't. And we could go issue by issue. Again, imperfect, but I know that change is possible. So for institutions and systems to change, people have to change. And if I didn't think people could change, I'd quit. So the question is, if I believe people can change, am I acting in a way that creates the opportunity for them to change or tells them I think they are lost forever to the worst version of themselves? And in that sense, am I then condemning them to be the worst version of themselves? Because I, because I don't believe they could be better. Now, I'm not saying we meet in the middle. I'm not saying we hold hands and sing kumbaya. Forget that shit. No. Listen, <laughs> I literally make a living arguing my political viewpoints. So I happen to think our differences and disagreements are incredibly important to us as individuals, as a country, as a species, they are what make us great. They're vital. We should be celebrating them. And I am determined, I am convinced that we can stand up passionately, strongly, beautifully, persuasively, stand up for what we believe without stomping on other people. I believe it's possible. And it's the only way. I will, again, I want to say, I have never, ever, 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 ever seen someone change because they looked at the other side and said, that other side? Man, they think I'm a stupid asshole. I'm going to go check them out. I'm going to go give them a try. Now, what I'm also not saying is that just being kind is not the answer. This is not a toothless politics. But I am saying that adopting, replicating, and embracing consciously or unconsciously, the history and habits of hate is a dead end. It doesn't lead us to where we want to go morally, 
practically. It just continues the problem. So what I'll close with is my own, and again, you know, we're going to have some Q&A, so you all throw your challenges at me, but I'll close with what I have taken away, right? Which is, listen, I still go on television and I argue with people. I still go on and I stand up for what I believe in. And whether that's in personal exchanges, in public political dynamics, whatever it is, I still fight for policy change and systems change, talk about the problems in the media and all those problems that need to be solved too. And I recognize that no one else is going to change if I'm only ever wagging my finger at them. And I have to also look at myself and what my piece of the puzzle is, what my piece of the problem is. And for me, the philosophy I've walked away with is that I am going to try to not be the excuse for others to be their worst selves. In the way I carry myself, in the way I communicate, in the way I talk, online, offline, in the way I stand up for what I believe, I'm going to try to not be the excuse for others to be their worst selves. And instead, try to be the inspiration. Try for others to be their best selves. That's our show for this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.